All right. Well, it is, it's so good to be with you guys today. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the, the guy that started this church about 14 years ago, and I serve now as the pastor of preaching here. Um, so glad you came here on Easter Sunday morning, fought the traffic and the crowds. We're so glad you're here at the Austin Stone Community Church. Um, I'm going to be teaching today out of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. If you happen to bring a Bible, you can turn there. If not, that's great. I'm going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen when I'm reading them. <clears throat> but it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> I want to start today by telling a little story. Um, my son asked me a few weeks ago a question. It was kind of out of the blue. He said, Dad, what was the... What was the greatest movie that's ever been made, in your opinion? And, and I was born in 1973, and so I don't have a lot of experience with movies really before the 80s. But, um, and so starting from about 1982s, I started paying attention in life. But I told him, I figure since the 80s, probably the greatest movie that's ever made was The Shawshank Redemption. And it was made in the 90s. If you've never seen it, I'm about to ruin the movie for you, but you've had 25 years, so I don't feel too bad for you. <coughs> but... Um, Basically, the story of this guy who is wrongly accused of a murder, goes to, gets a life uh, sentence in prison, goes to prison, meets a guy there named Red, who also has a, has a life sentence. They become really good friends, spend decades together in prison. Andy um, breaks out of prison, escapes, and before he leaves, he tells Red, he said, look, man, if you ever get out of here, uh, I've got something for you, and he gives him directions on where it is, and then he escapes, and Red eventually gets on parole, goes out, and when he gets out of the real world, he really struggles. He's been in prison for like 50 years, and so he doesn't, he doesn't do well on the outside. Life has kind of passed him on, and he begins to really uh, get depressed. He loses hope. He thinks about suicide, but then he remembers what his friend Andy had told him all those years before when he escaped. So he goes to the, the, follows the directions, goes to this place, and finds this little box, and in the box, there's a letter from his friend Andy there's some money in the letter that uh, pays the way for him to get where Andy is, where he escaped to. And then there's a letter. And at the end of the letter, it said this. <clears throat> Andy wrote, he said, Red, never forget that hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And a good thing never dies. And I want to ask you this. Why, why would a, somebody write those words? I, I think they're true words. But why would that character say that hope is a good thing, and maybe hope is the best of things. Why would somebody say that? Well, for those of you that are here this morning that have ever gone through a really serious trial in your life, I think you already know the answer to that question, and it's this. The reason that hope might be the very best of things is because no matter what you go through in your life, no matter what kind of trial you're experiencing in your life, if you have hope, you can get through it. It's when you lose hope. It's when you no longer have hope that that's when life becomes <clears throat> unbearable. And what the scripture that we're going to look at today is going to show us, and hear this, that as believers in Jesus, as people that have put our faith and trust in the risen Lord, what the resurrection of Jesus from the grave means to us is that you and I will never ever for one second in our lives go through trials and difficulty and suffering without hope. And what Peter does is Peter writes this letter. That's what first Peter is. It's a letter that he wrote to a church back in 60 AD that was experiencing a really, really difficult time. 
They were going through a lot of suffering and persecution. I'll talk more about it in a second. But he's writing this letter to them to encourage them and to remind them of the hope that they have because Jesus rose from the grave. So let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Because <clears throat> we're going to look at verse 6 first because what he does is kind of gives us some insight into what's going on with these people and why they're suffering. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been, now look at the words there, he says, distressed, by various trials. And so he writes this letter to this young church, I think it was in Asia Minor, and, and he's writing them because he says they have been distressed by various trials. Now I want you to look at the word distress there. Um, that is a Greek word, lupeo, and the, the uh, New Testament was originally written in Greek, and that, the word distress there is lupeo, and it, uh, it carries with it, I'm going to talk about this for a second, because it carries with it, lupeo does, in the Greek, a deeper meaning than our English word distressed. We kind of throw the word stressed or distressed out pretty frequently. Um, for example, if, I, if I'm on I-35 on my way to work on Monday morning and I'm in standstill traffic, you could honestly say that I am distressed. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? Um, if you go to Chick-fil-A at 1032 and they're out of Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits, I mean, I can honestly say that I'm distressed in that moment. Now, both of those things are not that big of a deal. I mean, the, no chicken biscuits is a big deal, but the traffic, it's not that big of a deal. And so I'm not a big fan of when English translations use the word distress. Because the idea, Lupeo kind of carries with it this idea of really of grieving, of grieving. Um, these people were grieving. It carries with it the idea of being heavy laden with some, some burden that you can't seem to shake. And so Peter's writing these people that aren't really distressed as much as they're depressed and they're about to give up hope and so here's the question what's going on with them why would why is this young church that Peter's writing to why are they about to give up hope why are they so grieved well look at verse six again he says in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while and if necessary you've been distressed by <coughs> various trials so it's not just this one thing it's multiple things again the letter was written in 60 AD this was 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and we do know that the Roman Empire had begun locally to persecute Christians. They were going around and killing Christians who professed faith in Jesus. So it's really likely that this church Peter's writing to is enduring persecution. That's probably the main reason. But in this letter, Peter addresses a lot of different struggles. Peter um, <coughs> writes to this church about how you deal with a spouse that's a non believer. So, like if you're a believer, and, and you're a follower of Christ, but your spouse is not. Like, how do you treat that person? You're supposed to treat them with love and respect and, 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 and point them to the Lord. He also addresses how to handle like a boss um, that's mean or overbearing. He addresses how we are to react in love when we are ridiculed for our faith or how to live in a society that's, um, that's hostile to Christianity. He addresses um, how to deal with sexual sin. He talks about that. He addresses Christians who have come to faith in Jesus but have begun to backslide and go back to their former lives of sin. He talks to them about how to do that. So we don't really know the totality of their suffering. <clears throat> we don't know the totality of their trials. We just know that he's writing them to comfort them in the middle of their suffering and grieving. Now, I want to stop right there and say this. I, I think that in a group this size, there's probably at least few of us that could raise our hand and go, well, honestly, Matt, even on this Easter Sunday morning, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I'm, I'm experiencing 
lupeo. I'm, I'm going through a, a season of, of grief or, or suffering or I'm weighed down with sorrow. And for many of you, maybe it's just one big thing. There's just one thing in your life that if I ask you, you could, you could point to it and go, yes, this thing right here is the reason that I'm struggling in my life right now. Maybe it's marriage, your marriage or, or lack of marriage or, or finances or your job or some sin that you're neck deep in or an addiction for me, that, it's kind of me. I'm, I've got this one big thing. I, for those of you that are new, you may not know this, but um, for those who've been around, you know, I've been dealing with this cough for months, this chronic cough. Doctors can't figure out what it is, and I'm just kind of suffering with it right now in my life, and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm just weighed down with it. And you could say I'm experiencing in my life lupeo because of this one thing. Others of you, it may not be one thing you can point to, but there's multiple things that are small in and of themselves. But when you add them all up, you're like, man, I'm feeling the weight of this. Well, here's what I want you to, to understand. And also, there's probably, let me say this, there's probably others of you that your life's just awesome. Well, your life's not always going to be awesome. I got bad news for you. And so listen to how the scripture says that we are to respond when we experience this lupeo in our lives. The scripture is very clear. There's a way that as believers we're to act. There's something that we're to do in the midst of those trials. Listen to it again in 1 Peter 1, 6. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Peter writes these people who are grieving They are weighed down with sorrow. And this is what he tells them there to do. He says, folks, right in the middle, (coughs) right in the middle, right in the smack dab middle of your sorrow, in this thing that you're going through, Peter says, I want you to know that you have a reason to greatly rejoice. Now, one of the things I want to point out about that word greatly rejoice there is that if you'll notice, he doesn't tell them Hey, in the middle of your trials, you have a reason to rejoice. That would have been crazy enough. He says, in the middle of your trial, you have a reason actually to greatly rejoice. That's two separate words in the Greek language. That word greatly, when you add it to the word rejoice, it literally means to jump for joy. Peter writes these people, writes them a letter, and in verse verse, uh, 6 there, he says, Hey, I want you to know this. In this, you are to jump for joy. And there's a, there's a big difference, huge difference in the meaning of the language there between just rejoice and actually jumping for joy. And that's why I want to talk about this for a second. He just kind of says, this is huge. Go crazy. Go nuts. Throw a party when you're going through trials. Um, I uh, <coughs> illustrate this. I, I told you guys a few months ago, I coached my son's football team. Uh, I'm the varsity offensive coordinator for the Veritas Defenders. Long story how I ended up doing that. But on the first day of practice this year, it's like August the 1st or whatever, it's 142 degrees outside and we're out there and, and we told the kids, this is our goal. We want to win state. We want to win a state championship. And so every day of practice, I mean every day of practice, we reminded them to go, well, we had a really good football team this year and we went 13-0 and <clears throat> and we won a state championship, which is awesome. And then, but the thank you. And then the first 12 games, the first 12 games, just normal games, And when we would win them, we'd rejoice. And we'd be happy, pat pat each other on the back, maybe maybe a high five, feeling crazy. But we just rejoiced. 
But then the state championship game came and we were underdogs. We were supposed to lose. Um, and we went in there and long story short, we won the game. We won the state championship and, and something happened that was really cool. I've got it on film. I'm not going to show you the film because I couldn't figure out how to make that happen. But um, the second when the clock hit zero, it was like five, four, three, two, one. And we won the game. Something just, we didn't train the kids to do this. We didn't, we didn't tell them this you know, should happen. But immediately the second it hit zero and it hit everybody, we did it. We won the, the TAPS Division II state championship. Everybody immediately just took their helmets off and everybody just jumped up in the air and threw their hands in the air and we just, we just kind of jumped for just a second. And, we, and like everybody was hugging each other and, and it, was, it was one of the coolest moments of my life. I want to show you a real quick picture. I did find this picture, um, but that's me right there on the left. And we just won state and those are my boys are all going crazy. That coach uh, behind me there, his, you can't really tell, but he was crying like a baby in that picture. <laughs> And that, right there, right there, is what Peter's talking about. That's the word picture that he paints. You can bring that down. That's, that's the thing that he says to do. He, he writes these grieving people, and he says, I know you're going through these various trials, and I know you're heavy with sorrow, but this is what I want you to do. You have a reason in the middle of those things to greatly rejoice. Now, why in the world would he say that? Now, why in the world would he say that? I mean, is he nuts? Is he crazy? At first glance, it almost, it almost sounds pastorally insensitive to write a letter to a group of people that are grieving and say, hey, I understand you're going through the hardest time in your life. Hey, but here's what you need to do, man. Let's throw a party. Why would he say that? Okay, well, remember, let's go back to verse six. Remember verse six. He says, bring that up. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. There's something that gives you a reason to greatly rejoice. What is he talking about? Look at verse 3. He tells us. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's that word. Why? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this, you jump for joy. <clears throat> In this, you greatly rejoice, even though you are being distressed by various trials. In this, you shout and you raise your hands and you celebrate, even though you are grieving and heavy laden with sorrow, Peter says, because you have been born again to a living hope. And the hope is this, Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. He's not in his grave, but he's alive. And I want you to hear this real clearly. If there was anybody in the world that was qualified to say that we have a reason to hope and we have a reason to celebrate in the middle of our sin and sorrow and shame and trials in this world. If anybody is qualified to say because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have hope, it's Peter. <clears throat> because Peter, I'm going to tell you about Peter. Peter was the one guy that talked the most smack about never letting Jesus down. 
You go read the, the story of the last couple of nights of Jesus' life and really their whole ministry. Peter was the one guy that was constantly saying, Jesus, I'll never let you down. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never betray you. But it was Peter on the night that Jesus needed him the most that failed him over and over and over and over again. You got the Garden of Gethsemane. It was before Jesus was <coughs> crucified and, and Jesus is kind of hitting Jesus, that he's about to, the scripture says, become our sin. That's how he paid for it. He was sinless. He, um, he shed his blood on the cross. And in that moment, he was separated because of, his, uh, because of our sin that he bore upon himself. He was separated from God for the very first time in all of eternity. And it's kind of hitting Jesus that that's about to happen. And so he's going to go pray and ask God if there's any other way that he can pay for our sins. And before he does, he stops and he says, Peter, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, man. I'm about to go pray. Would you pray for me? And Jesus goes and sweats drops of blood and says, God, it's not my will, but your will be done. And he stands up completely resolute to go to the cross, comes back, Peter's sound asleep. I guarantee you, Peter felt bad about that later on. <clears throat> later in the night, the Roman soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus doesn't try to run, doesn't fight back. Jesus just walks right towards them and says, here I am. And, and Peter, who had the front row seat to Jesus throughout the years, saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Peter heard that over and over again, but yet it was Peter when the Roman soldiers came to pull out his sword and chopped off a guy's ear. And Jesus had to heal the guy, even though he was being arrested. I'm sure Peter felt pretty stupid later on about that. Later on that night, or rather earlier in the evening, um, Peter looks at Jesus and says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to betray you. And Jesus says, now as a matter of fact, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to betray me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus has been arrested. He's going to his trial. Peter is kind of incognito following behind him. And somebody sees Peter and says, hey, man, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And he says, no, I'm not. And the guy says, no, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure that you're a follower of Christ. I've, I've seen you with him before. And Peter said, no, I'm, I'm not. I don't even know the guy. Another person says, no, wait a minute, I, I'm pretty sure we've seen you before with Jesus. And then Peter cursed. He, he cussed. He blank, blank, blank. I am not a follower of Jesus. I don't even know the guy. And in that moment, the rooster crows, just like Jesus said. And Jesus, who was a few steps down the road, heard the rooster crow, turns around. And their eyes meet. Watch what happens there. Don't turn there. Just listen in Luke twenty-two sixty-one. <coughs> it says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him. Before a rooster crows today. You will deny me three times. And he. That's Peter. And Peter went out. And wept. Bitterly. You know what weeping Bitterly means in the Greek, it means he dirty cried. You ever dirty cried before? I have, and you don't dirty cry when you're sad. You dirty cry when your life is falling apart. And that's where Peter is right here in this moment. And, and even after Jesus had risen from the grave, and he was alive, and everybody else was celebrating. Peter was so racked with guilt. Peter was so overcome with shame that he just took off. 
Everybody else is celebrating. <coughs> Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the beginning. And the Bible tells us that Peter that night, he stayed up all night long. All night long, no doubt, reliving all the failures of the previous days. All the time that he let, let, let his friends down and let Jesus down. All the times that he bragged that he'd never mess up and how he messed up over and over again. Overcome with guilt and shame. And then one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion, <clears throat> the scripture says that as the sun was rising, Peter looked up and Jesus was standing there on the beach. This is after the cross. This is after his death. This is after Jesus rose from the grave and Peter took off. It says that Peter looked up and Jesus was standing there on the beach. And church, I want you to know something. It hit Peter in that moment like a bolt of lightning that I may have left Jesus Christ, but Jesus has not left me. It hit Peter in that moment that I might have walked away from Jesus, but Jesus has not walked away from me. I might have given up on Jesus, but it hit Peter. It came crashing into his heart in that moment that Jesus has not given up on me. And he throws himself into the water. He just, just jumps in. And then he swims as fast as he can, and he crawls up onto the beach. And by the time he would got to the beach, Jesus had cooked him breakfast. I did. Go read your Bible. It's not, it's not funny. That's just what happened. <coughs> Jesus had cooked him breakfast and they sat there and ate. Jesus forgave him and then restored him to ministry. You see, Peter learned something that morning on the beach. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter what you've done or how heinously you've failed. It doesn't matter how big the trial and it doesn't matter how dark the night, Peter learned that morning that because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he would never again be without hope. That's what he learned that morning. And real quickly, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to see something because what Peter says next, what Peter says next, <coughs> Peter says, okay, we have this living hope. We never lose it. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. In other words, since Jesus is now alive, we have this hope. And then he's going to tell us exactly what our hope is. He's going to say there's, there's a couple of things that, that when you're walking in the middle of your trial, when you're suffering, when you're grieving, there's a couple of things you can actually look forward to in the middle of those trials. Let's watch what he says. Look at verse 3 one more time. <clears throat> he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy... Peter knows that, right? According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Watch what he says. To obtain an inheritance. Peter says, because of the resurrection, this is our hope. We're gonna obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and it will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter says, this is the reason, the reason, the reason that you can greatly rejoice in the middle of your trial is not because God's going to remove your trial. God never says that, never promises that. He's like, the reason you can rejoice in the middle of your trial is not because God's going to fix everything or, re or remove your trials here on earth. Peter is saying <clears throat> that the reason you can greatly rejoice in the middle of your trial is because of the resurrection of Jesus. You have an inheritance and it's waiting for you in heaven with your name on it. 
And he says, that's what you can look forward to. I don't care what you're going through. Here's, here's, here's the hope. You're going to die one day. You're going to breathe your final breath. And in that moment, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're going to enter into the presence of the Lord. And good news, you have an inheritance with your name on it there in heaven. He said, that's your hope. Now, I don't know about you, but for years when I read that, the very first thing that came to my mind when I would think about my um, inheritance, this imperishable, undefiled inheritance that was going to be mine in heaven, the very first thing I started thinking about usually would were some earthly possession on steroids, right? That, that was going to be mine in heaven. I did a, I did a series on heaven years ago. And uh, what most people don't realize is that heaven's not going to be this place where we just hang out in clouds with little chubby babies with harps and sing to Jesus forever. That that's not what the Bible says heaven is like. The scripture actually says in the book of Revelation that God makes a new earth. He makes a new perfect earth and that we get to spend eternity with the Lord, enjoying him forever on this new earth. And so when I would hear that, <clears throat> that I've got this inheritance waiting for me on the new earth, the very first place my mind goes, and probably a lot of us are like that, the very first place my mind goes is like, what's my house going to be like on the new earth? You know, I started thinking about that. And I, um, I don't want to re-preach my heaven sermon, but one of the things that I'm convinced of is that there will be work in heaven because we had work in the Garden of Eden and, and it just got bad because of sin. And so now we hate work, but we're actually going to enjoy work in heaven and on this new earth forever. And I've asked the Lord, I've actually prayed for this. I've asked the Lord, told him I wanted to be a farmer because we're not going to need preachers anymore. And so I'm going to need a new job. And so I've asked him if I could be a, true, and I'm going to be, I want to be a farmer. <coughs> and specifically, specifically, I want to have a vineyard and um, if you ever seen Gladiator at the end where Russell Crowe, he's walking with like the wheat, you know, and up the hill and the big Italian house and, and there's grape vines everywhere and mist and stuff. I mean, that's I'm like, Lord, would you please give me that? That's not too much to ask, right? And um, I don't know if y'all know Pastor Hall M. He's a guy that preaches a lot here. I, I know this for a fact. When he thinks about his heavenly inheritance, the first place his mind goes is food. He's like, what am I going to eat for eternity? Um, and make no mistake, I, I really do believe with all my heart that heaven is going to be that and, and so much more. But I want you to look carefully at what Peter says about our inheritance. Watch, watch again, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefined, or undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The key to understanding what he's talking about, what our inheritance will be like, you got to look at those two words, imperishable and undefiled. And listen carefully to this. When he says that our inheritance that we're going to have, that we put our hope in, is, not, um, is imperishable and undefiled, he's not so much talking about um, material possessions that we're going to get in heaven as much as he's talking about us. He's talking about what we are going to be like. In heaven, and here's what I mean. <clears throat> one of the things, and hang with me, get, get theological here for just a second. One of the things that most people don't realize about the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for you and me and why it's so important. One of the things they don't realize about the resurrection and that makes it unique and different is not that Jesus died and came back to life. That, that's not what makes the resurrection of Jesus unique. And here's why I say that. Because there's other people in history that have died and come back to life. In the Old Testament, Jesus raised an entire army from the dead back to life. In the New Testament, you've, Jesus uh, brought a, um, 
<coughs> brought a widow's son back to life. He, he brought Lazarus back to life. And so Jesus was not unique in the fact that he was resurrected. Okay, now listen to this. But here's how all those other people, the army that God raised to life in the Old Testament, uh, the people that died and were raised to life in the New Testament, here's how all those people were different than Jesus. All those other people that died and rose again, they all eventually died again. Every one of them. Every single person that for whatever reason in the scripture had been raised to life, eventually they got old or they got sick and they died again. Okay? Now, listen real carefully. Because what I'm about to say, and if you don't hear anything I say today, I want you to hear this. What I'm about to say is the reason why the resurrection of Jesus is the single most important event in the history of the world. Is what makes the resurrection of Jesus so unique is that he was the very first person in all of history that died, rose from the grave, and then never died again. He was the very first person in the history of the world that died, rose from the grave, and he's still alive right now. And that's why the people that wrote the New Testament, they often refer to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. All right, let me, let me read it real quick. Don't turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Apostle Paul writes, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. He goes, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ perish. In other words, those that put their faith in Jesus, but they died. He goes, If Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, those people are just dead. He says, but if we have hoped in, in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If that's the case, Jesus never rose from the grave. People that put their faith and trust in him, they died and they're just dead. Then we are to be pitied above all people, which I agree with. And then in verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul said, I saw him. And then he calls him. He says, the first fruits of those who are asleep. You see, because what, you know how they call People in Christ, they don't say they died, they say they've fallen asleep because in Jesus Christ, when you die, it's just like waking up from a nap. You don't just die, you wake up to eternal life and here's why. He calls him the first fruits. Not because Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead. They call him the first fruits because he was the first person to die, come back to life and live forever. That's what he calls him that. In other words, listen, Jesus rose from the grave, imperishable. He rose from the grave, imperishable. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered, if you go read, one of the things interesting you'll read in the, the, the story of the cross and the resurrection is that when Jesus rose from the grave, most people didn't recognize him. Have you ever wondered why? They hung out with him for three years. He rose from the grave, they didn't recognize him. He was walking on the road to Emmaus. Peter and John see him, they don't know who he is. He's like, hey guys, I'm, I'm Jesus. They're like, oh, Jesus. Have you ever wondered why that happens? And here's the answer. Because when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose from the grave brand new, perfectly healthy, perfectly whole. He was completely imperishable. And he ascended to heaven and he's alive today. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits. He is the pioneer 
of a brand new kind of life. Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and defeated death, and now everything is different because he did so. Peter writes these people, and he says, I want you to know something. This is our hope that you get to look forward to even though you're grieving, that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, imperishable, never to die again, if you will put your faith in Jesus, so will you. That there is going to come a day where you're going to breathe your last and you are going to rise and be in the presence of the God, of God and you'll be perfectly healthy, perfectly whole, you will be imperishable and you will never, ever, ever die again. Peter says that's, that's our hope. That's the hope you look forward to in your trials and your grieving. That's why you can greatly rejoice in your trials because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the first fruits. Those of us who put our faith and trust in him, it means this. It means there's coming a day and there's coming a time and there's coming a place where there will be no need for wheelchairs. There's coming a time and a place where there will be no need for reading glasses for old people like me and, and nursing homes. And there's coming a day and a time and a place there be no need for hospitals or pain medication or, or Zoloft. The, the resurrection of, of Jesus, it means there's coming a time and a place where there'll, there'll be no bad backs and there'll be no wrinkles and there'll be no weight gain and there'll be no CrossFit, amen? You know what I'm talking about? There'll be no fear. There's gonna be no anxiety, no pain, no sadness, no stress. And Peter says, I want you to understand that is what we can look for too. As a matter of fact, Peter said, let's just get the party started right now. Because that's just coming in a few short years. Even now, you're struggling for a little while. But that's what's coming. And then Peter says one more thing. I'm almost done. Hang on. Peter says one more thing. That's our hope. In verse 4, watch what he says. He says, we're going to obtain because of the resurrection of Jesus. The first person to die, come back to life and never die again. We're going to obtain an inheritance. <coughs> it's imperishable and it's undefiled. It's undefiled. And I'll be honest with you. Of those two things that are going to be my inheritance, I might be looking more forward to the second one than I am the first one. I've had a rough year physically, and I won't go into all the details. I've had a lot of health issues this year, and I am really looking forward to rising in heaven with an imperishable body. But there's something I'm, I'm looking forward to even more than that, and that is rising undefiled. Undefiled. And here's what that means. You know, my sin is forgiven because of Jesus. Because of his shed blood on the cross and my trust into what he did on the cross, my sins are completely forgiven. The scripture says the Lord looks at me. And because I've, 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 I've asked Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior, he, he doesn't see my sin. He sees his son and he sees righteousness. But what we also know is even though our sin is forgiven, I'm still made of flesh and sin still keeps popping up in my life. When I was younger, I kind of figured by 42, I'd have the sin thing figured out, but I want you to know I'll have victory in one area of my life and then there'll be this ugly thing that just pops up and I have to fight it and deal with it. I'm so sick of sin. I'm sick of the effects it's having on this world. I'm, I'm sick of the, 
the effects I see in, in the church and in my children and in my marriage. I hate sin. And what Jesus is saying is that, or whether Peter is saying is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's going to come a day where not only our, our bodies are going to rise imperishable, but when we enter into glory with Jesus, we will be completely undefiled, which means we will be without sin completely for the first time in all of our existence. It means that when I see Jesus face to face for the first time, that that will be the very first time in my whole life, in my whole existence, that I will be able to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my strength, and with all of my soul for the very first time in my life. I will experience in that moment the very thing that I was created by God to experience. Peter says that's what you look for. You, know, you got an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled. And I'll end with this story. Over Christmas break, <coughs> um, we got the call that Jennifer's aunt, her cancer had come back, and uh, that she only had a few days to live at most. And, um, and we went. And I'll be really honest with you, I, I think sinfully I was struggling with a lot of fear at the time because we didn't know what this cough thing was and we didn't know if it was esophageal cancer or lung cancer. We hadn't done all these tests and we were about to go do these tests. We didn't know what, so I was, that was a rough one for me to <clears throat> be struggling with this and to, to go see our aunt that was dying of cancer, but we went because that's what we needed to do. And we walked in and, and it was bad, man. She, cancer had spread all over her body and, she was in a lot of pain. The family was around her bed crying. And, um, and as we walked in, I looked out of the corner of my eye, and on the television, it was a commercial for some TV show. I don't know what it was, but this woman was taking off her top, and they were advertising with this. And and, and immediately just just made me mad. It made me mad. I just got so viscerally mad in that moment because there's just a second I realized it was like that, that sin right there that we just gloss over that sin right there is the reason that all this is happening that sin right there is why I can't quit coughing because, because sin at the end of the world the reason this woman's body is decaying and she's dying because of that sin it just made me mad and then it just hit me it just hit me it's like this woman right here this woman right here, if all this is true, if all this is really true, that Jesus really did die on a cross for our sins, to pay for it all, if he really did rise from the grave, like the, like the scripture says that he did, then this moment right here is not a moment of sadness as much as it is a moment of hope. Because this woman right here is a about to be. She's a few hours away from being imperishable. She's a few hours away, just a little bit of suffering away from being undefiled. And I walked right up to her and I got down on one knee and I got close to her and I said, Frankie, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior? And she looked up at me right in the eye and she said, He is my Lord. And he is my savior. And I said, Frankie, I want you to know something. He's with you right now. And you are about to see him 
face to face. And you don't have to be afraid anymore. And a calm came over. She died a short time later. And here is the hope of the Bible. Here is the hope of this story. Is that when my aunt closed her eyes in death, she opened up her eyes and she found herself in the arms of Jesus. Completely healed. Completely whole. Completely imperishable. Completely safe. Completely at peace. Completely at home. And completely in love. And Peter said, that is your hope. That is what you look forward to. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you face, no matter what trial you experience in your life, Peter writes these suffering, grieving people, and he says, hope is a good thing. It might be the best of things. And the resurrection of Jesus promises us that you and I will never, ever for one second walk through this life without hope. Let's pray. Let's pray. If you're here today and, and you know in your heart of hearts that there is something in your life that is missing, <clears throat> that there is a part of you that's just not quite right, I want you to know that what that is is the part of you that the Lord created to worship Him. And you'll never be satisfied or happy or at peace in this life until you're reconciled and restored back in a relationship with your creator. The good news is that Jesus accomplished that through the cross. He accomplished that through his death. And his resurrection promises us, not that we won't have trials in this life, but there will come a day you'll see him face to face. You'll be completely whole, imperishable, undefiled. I want to ask you, in the quietness of this place, this is the best way you know how to say, Lord, I, I, I trust in Jesus, what he did on the cross, to pay for my sins. I believe that you rose from the grave. The scripture says you do that, you will be saved. And you have an inheritance with your name on it. You do that now. Jesus, you are Lord. And I love you so much. And I believe with all my heart that this is true. Life really doesn't make much sense at all without this. C.S. Lewis was right. Everything changes because of this. Because you rose from the grave. But I pray that today that those of us who are believers that have that hope, that hold on to that hope, that we would celebrate you sing to you on the top of our lungs for what you've done. We worship you today. We thank you today for what you've done. And so now, Lord, it is our privilege to sing to a risen Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together.